No, no one wants to see my crazy hair. <laughs> I know, honey. <laughs> it's, it's fabulous, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And oh, what a show have we got today for you. We will be talking to Liz Potter about an amazing project she's done. We're really in love with this. We'll review a couple of zines. We'll talk about E6 processing. We'll rattle on a bit about f-stops and you know, quite a bit more, really. But first, Vanya, how the effing heck are you? Uh, pretty good, actually. I did good. a couple little micro trips since the last episode, so that was Ooh, a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah, I went to Catalina for the day, got seasick okay. a little bit. <laughs> That's, that just goes with it, really. Yeah, I shot with my uh, Nikon S5 and oh. my little 20 millimeter underwater lens. So that was a ton of fun. That's really wide. Cool. Yeah, yeah, cool. really, really wide. Did you shoot with anything else there? Yes, I did, actually. The color clipper. Goodness. Now, where did you get the color clipper? <laughs> oh, my goodness. You sent it to me with a box of film. <laughs> A huge box of it, like expired film. It's ridiculous. That was one thing I did. And again, another micro trip. I went to Sequoia basically for the day. That's crazy. You do that on a day trip. It was kind of an intense one. Honestly, if more campgrounds were open, I probably would have just stayed the night. Uh, but I woke up at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. Got on the road at four, drove to Sequoia, did the in the entire drive, went all the way to the very end of the road of Kings Canyon, jumped into Kings River, and then came home, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, for living next to the ocean, you went a hell of a long way for a swim. Yeah, I did. But I usually go at least once a year, and it has felt a little strange not to go up to Sequoia. So it's kind of something I felt like I needed to do. Um, also, Marley started school uh, a few days ago. And so we're working on that. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's been a very um, interesting transition yeah. from just regular school. Since she doesn't have like peers in the hallway, are you like book checking her when she walks by and giving her swirlies from time to time just to keep her humble? Not more than usual. Good. How about you? What have you been up to? Well, I, I've got a bit in over my head and I published two issues of Conspiracy of Cartographers <laughs> at the same time. Like I, I think I mentioned it last last episode. That was kind of my use your illusion one and two. This is eight and nine. Maybe I made a mistake doing this. Because I think people are a little like, what the fuck are you doing? Number eight is made up of photos I took with the brownie box camera. And number nine is with expired 127 film from the 60s that I shot in this cute little plastic imperial satellite two. Both are available on my Etsy shop and this is basically a commercial at this point. And if you picked them up already thank you so much and if you haven't they may be around for a while so we'll see i like how you do these themed zines like okay i'm gonna shoot just with the box camera or i'm gonna shoot i have four or five rolls of this film and i'm yeah. going to photograph with just this film and make a zine i think that's a really good idea as far as like if maybe someone is thinking about making a zine but they're not sure as far as what direction it kind of limits you i think it focuses you yeah well like the box camera zine was taken with tab grain film and of roads it was all of roads mm -hmm. i really love that one i just Thank got you. mine in the mail yay i mean um, i obviously had a <laughs> tiny itty bitty bit 
to do with it. So yes, it, it you, was exciting to see. You arranged it. So that was that's a, a very much of a collaborative effort. <laughs> you helped me a lot with issue nine as well. And speaking of collaborative efforts, we have a few copies of six by seven left. We're actually getting kind of low. I don't know what you're waiting on at this point. But if you're waiting on anything, maybe don't wait on it and uh, get on that. Other than that, I have been kind of just developing and scanning and developing and scanning. And that's kind yeah, of Yeah, not much shooting. I, I mean, honestly, even when I was in Sequoia, I brought a little Rolly 35 and I shot with that just a tiny bit. But yeah, I haven't really been shooting much. No. And there's more there's more to photography than shooting. Well, this podcast, obviously. Well, yeah, there's obviously this podcast <laughs> takes up a lot of time. There's shooting and there's developing. There's scanning and doing a lot of those, obviously. And there's zine making. And there's just kind of like sharing your stuff on, on social media or, you know, wherever. And of course, just talking to people about photography. It's There's more to photography than just shooting. Definitely. I have noticed a huge spike in, you know, um, at least on Instagram, as far as like people processing their own and even like people doing YouTube things and group, you know, videos about developing yes. their own film. And I think it's just been really amazing to see that people are doing that. So earlier this week, I even saw two people developing together. It was really cool to see like somebody else basically doing a dev party like we do. I know. But I think that's a really cool thing to do. And I don't, I don't know if they listen to dev party and I don't know if that's where they got the idea or they're just doing stuff together. But whatever it is, I think it's awesome that people are developing together, especially yeah. now when we're still socially limiting ourselves and all of that. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty cool. I think so too. So along with developing together, I find that things like that are really encouraging to us and to each other. And I think right now, especially with film, we should be encouraging each other to try new things and do new things and experiment a little bit or just do whatever the fuck we want to do and just encourage each other in that way. That said, we got something to talk about. <laughs> yes, we have both developed slide film and its intended chemistry known as E6 processing and really like the results. They are pretty amazing. Uh, speaking of, we'll be doing an E6 dev party really, really soon. So yeah. that will be coming up. I'm really excited about that. It's been like a year or so since I've dev'd an E6. And oh, really? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, yeah that's going to be fun. I mean, honestly, there's nothing quite like pulling out negatives and seeing images, but it's really fun <laughs> when they're positive because oh, you're like, sure. oh my gosh, you could see. This yeah. is what the picture looks like. I mean, it's a really great feeling. So we both usually just cross-process it. And so real quick, what cross-processing is, is all you'll hear the term X-Pro as well. It's when you develop an emulsion in chemistry that was meant for another emulsion. So in this case, it's developing slide film or positive film in a developer that was made for negative films, like regular C41 developer. So developing E6 film in C41 chemistry is is mostly what people are talking about when they talk about cross-processing. About like a week or two ago, Emulsive ran a piece about E6 and the title was Stop Cross-Processing Your Slide Film. And then this fabulous <laughs> hashtag, hashtag say no to X-Pro. Yeah. And that's Okay, it was kind of a a, a bold statement. Yeah, I, I want to know, like, what do you? So, <laughs> well, what do you? I know Eric has something to say about this. So yeah, you know, I do. I'm all ears. I try to see good things first, and I know that M from also likes the clicks. Everybody does. We like the hits. We like the clicks. It it's wonderful. 
And so I figured that it was the clickbaity way to get us to read an article that would probably say something to the effect of, hey, have you tried developing slide film in E6? It's awesome. Uh, and here's a few tips for you to get started on it. I thought it'd be like a positive, you know, let's go and do this kind of article. And that would have been awesome. That article still needs to be written because that is absolutely not what was happening here. Instead, the author would say stuff like, what is wrong with you for cross-processing? And writing that X-Pro looks like what only a 12-year-old would think is a cool poster by some one-hit wonder college grunge band. Now, hold on. <laughs> I'm just trying to think what grunge band he's talking about, because I'm pretty sure most of the ones, at least here in America, had more than one hit. But yeah, whatever. they did pretty well. We get <laughs> across the pond, things are a little different here. But we're talking about slide film, so we got to be positive. I don't. I, I disagree with the with the premise entirely. Some people just don't like the technical and realistic look of slide film or the colors developed in E6. They expro their film specifically to achieve a different effect, and I do that myself. I like slide film. I like it in ECN2 better, honestly. I just like the look of it better. So mm -hmm. to me, there's nothing like shooting like a really surreal little desert scene with slide film through a plastic lens, which I get is also sacrilege. It doesn't capture exactly how it looked, but more often than not, it captures how it feels and what it felt like to be there, and that's what I want out of my photography. I don't want an exact representation of what something looked like. If I wanted that, I would shoot digital. I don't mm -hmm. want that. I guess that should be the point with everybody. If you like slide film and its intended E6 developer, go for it. Uh, but if you don't like it, don't do it. It's weird how simple that is to say that one person has to develop this or stop shooting this film is just weird. It's just a weird hill to die on. So... <laughs> shoot your own shot, develop it however you like, enjoy photography on your terms and nobody else's. I just don't understand how that just isn't the norm for everybody. I just remember when mm -hmm. I first got into film photography, you know, when I was a teenager, yeah, seeing cross-process for the first time and how like insanely cool it is. And it literally, I see it as the same thing as a digital photographer using filters and things over their pictures to make them look different than what the camera intended. Where do you go with the extreme here of this this weird like gatekeeping extreme? Well, I can tell you what I think about it if you yeah, like. Okay. Why don't you tell me how you think about what you think about this? I'm just gonna make it really super quick. I I'm gonna say what I would say to anyone with a conservative opinion. I am very pro-choice on this matter, and I don't need anyone, especially a man, to tell me how to shoot and develop my film. I will do whatever I damn well please, because it's my film and my photographs. I highly suggest everyone do the same. You want to develop an E6? Cool. If you don't, I'm cool with that as well. So you're, you're, you're ex-pro-choice. <laughs> Technically, I love this community so much. And I just wish that we could stop doing this. Like, I don't know him personally. So I'm sure he's a nice guy. And you know, I it's just someone's opinion. It's like Facebook for me. Sometimes these articles, I'm just like, Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> it's like yeah. a fucking train, right? Like it's begging people to comment on some shit like this. I guess my, my problem with it is everything I've already said. We don't need to act like this with each other. We don't need to behave like this to each other. We can no. be supportive of each other and need to be supportive of each other. And if we're not, maybe just shut up about it. I am really, really excited about pushing this damn button. I want to hear our answering machine. Let's get over this. <laughs> now that that's out of the way, I guess we can go into the answering machine. What was this week's question that we were asking people to call in about? Is there a place that you never visited that you would like to photograph? 
That's an easy one, right? Well, you'd think so. We got a bunch of calls. We couldn't include everybody and we're growing. So we're getting more calls than we can handle. So keep calling in, but understand that if we don't we don't play, it's not because it wasn't a kick-ass call or we don't like you or something. It's We're just randomly picking. <laughs> we're, well, we're not <laughs> we do we do edit for time and so keep your calls as short and, and brief as possible and also get them in on time because there's some that come in late and we can't include those um why don't we just uh shut the fuck up i and know can i push the button already jesus push, push the damn button hello no one is available to take your call please leave a message after the tone the uh, photographic subject that I've had uh, stuck in my head for the longest that I've wanted to photograph has been uh, at 33 Thomas Street in uh, Lower Manhattan. It's better known as the AT&T Long Lines Building. Um, it's the answer to the question that I think very few people are asking today, which is, what if you built a brutalist skyscraper 500 feet tall, but it was also a nuclear bunker? It was built to survive a direct nuclear strike on Lower Manhattan. The building is insane. It's 500 feet tall. It has no windows. The ceilings are 18 feet high. And it housed for quite some time massive telephone switchboard equipment. It has um, ventilation systems and uh, underground fuel and water tanks that can keep it self-sufficient for up to two weeks uh, without taking in any external air. And it looks like no other building. And if I were to, I would certainly bring some of my rare stash of HIE infrared or TechPan and shoot it on my Nikon F2 with its uh, cheap pre-AI shift lens. Nothing really goes together like some Cold War brutalist architecture, some grainy black and white film, and uh, a nice good shift lens. Okay. <laughs> Can I just comment really quick? So we did ask what's the place that you would like to photograph that you've like never visited? And he answered that. But not only did he answer that, but he gave us the reason why and the films that he would use, which is kind of amazing because yeah. I didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we mentioned that, I think, in the Instagram post. Oh, um, did we? Oh, that we was did. you. <laughs> that, that was, yes, that was me. <laughs> that was, Whoops. Uh, always going that extra mile for you, Vanya. Thank you. I don't know. I've never heard of this building. And it's, it sounds amazing. It really sounds like an amazing building. I'm yeah. not sure how you would photograph it. Obviously, all the cool stuff wouldn't come through. But unless you'd like sneak in like Ocean's Eleven style, maybe. I'm not really <laughs> sure what you would do. But I'm very eager to see that. I'm looking at a picture of it. It is kind of intense. He should do this and, and report back. Yes. We'll send him on assignment. Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Hannah Grace. One place I've always wanted to visit and photograph that I've never been to is Alaska. I especially want to see the Northern Lights. And of course, like the crazy person I am, I want to try to capture those with my Graflex Crown graphic and some Portra 400. Um, but really, I just want to see Alaska because it looks beautiful. Oh, that sounds so amazing. I did a night shot with Portra. Oh, was it Portra 400 or Ektar? No, I can't remember. You helped me with it because you were always like, help me find the reciprocity, please. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember I think that. It was like did a I four do... minute long exposure and, and oh, wow. it ended up being okay. like eight minutes or something ridiculous. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, I, that sounds amazing. I would love to see that. Yeah. Hannah solo hiking in Alaska with her Graflex. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think it needs to be done with a baby in her on her back as well. Or in front, like a little front carrier, just going for it. Yes. Get her all bundled up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'll let her borrow the baby Graflex. <laughs> <laughs>
Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Matt um, at Moonraker32 on Instagram. I would say that would be a Salton Sea and Bombay Beach. Um, you know, it was a very popular destination um, back, I think, in the 50s and 60s. And it's now, like, basically abandoned. Actually, hopefully we'll go there next year when we go to Palm Springs, assuming we're out of this uh, pandemic. And cameras I plan to use, I would probably uh, use my Bronica SQA um, to shoot some Kodak Vericolor 3. Just to get it kind of that kind of older aesthetic from a color standpoint. And for black and white, either uh, my Pentax K1000 or Pentax uh, Spotmatic that I actually uh, bought from Eric. And probably use the Micrat 300 in that. This is a place that is very close to me <laughs> I could drive to, and I have not yet gone. And it started with skateboarding, like I'm empty sure. pools and things like that, because I like to go on little skate missions and take pictures yeah. of empty pools. There's Rick and Buddy, these two skateboarders who started like a production company, and they would film all skateboarding in eight millimeter film, which I thought okay. was like kind of amazing. Yeah. And there's a lot of footage of like the Salton Sea area and like the empty pools then and things like that and it's just always been like a place that i've wanted to go i guess okay. yeah i don't know there seems to be a lot of like rural decay in texas as well i'm wondering like what what is it about the salton sea because i've never been either that would draw somebody who's surrounded with this kind of stuff it's because it's a planned place that just completely became a disaster that's every ghost town <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a very interesting story. I mean, if yeah, you haven't uh, watched any kind of like documentary on it, I would highly recommend it because yeah. it is a very, very interesting story. And yeah. it is just one of those popular like resort boomtown places. And now it's just eerie and creepy. And there's just it reeks. There's dead fish everywhere. There's like still people that kind of live there. It's it's a strange place. We just talked about this recently. There's always like a few people that just kind of like stand by it. They're just like, no, this is my home. I'm staying. Yeah. You know, like kind of like where you used to live in Pennsylvania, like a yeah, few Centralia. towns over or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it, it's interesting. Those people, like, you know, yeah. what, what's their story? Why are they staying? And, you know, they must yeah, love that it. that is interesting. You're right. Anyway, he's shooting with my old Pentax Spotmatic. Uh, I never remember. I've had a lot of cameras come through my hands, and it's always hard for me to remember who gets what. And I'm glad that my Spotmatic, which is a camera I really enjoyed shooting with, went to, to Matt. Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Ben from DDS on Instagram. And the place I want to go and photograph that I've never been to is Memphis, Tennessee. This year, my dad and I were going to go coast to coast in an old car, uh, and we were going to stop in Memphis. And I wanted to capture just the culture, uh, the music scene, because I love soul and R&B from the 70s and 80s. And that's one of the places where it all started. One of the first shows I've ever been to was in Memphis at the New Daisy when oh, I was cool. like 11 or 12. I lived in Memphis for like, I think we lasted like six months. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be pretty common. People moving to Memphis just going, not for me. <laughs> but it's obviously for a lot of people. I've been there. I, I really like the town. Yeah, I really like it. I think, well, at that time, it was like really early 90s. And honestly, my mom was like the only Hispanic person there. <laughs> So were there a lot of like um, one hit wonder grunge bands going on? Or? <laughs> yes, definitely. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, it was, uh, can, who was it? It was the Murmurs. Okay. So maybe that would be a one hit wonder, right? I think you have to have one hit to be a one hit wonder. That they I think they had one hit. So it would be. Okay. You don't remember them? No, I don't remember them at all. I'm sorry. It's that song. Um, and for that, you suck or something like that. Remember that? Yeah. No, I don't. <gasps> and for that. You suck.
I'm sorry. I was in a very different scene in the early 90s. Yes, okay. Sorry. Hi, guys. This is Joel here at JoelBingy underscore. Probably, well, it's going to be Indonesia. There's like 17,000 islands, and I'm regularly there for work. Uh, never really take the time to um, enjoy it fully. As for the camera I would bring with me, something like a 612, maybe? That would be fantastic. Cheers, guys. Love from Antwerp. This, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is our first overseas. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that he's totally admitted, like, I go there for work. But, you know, sometimes when you're just working, it's just about work. Yeah. It would be nice for him to be able to, you know, take an extra week and just, like, get on a boat and check out some of those islands. And yeah. his camera choice, I like, too. Very interesting. I've never shot anything like that. It'd be kind of fun. Yeah, would be. A place that I haven't visited yet, but I would love to shoot. That would probably be Cuba. The type of film that I would use would be strictly slide film. Just, I would love to just shoot pure slide film. Uh, medium format, 35, whatever. I just, uh, I just can't wait to have that opportunity. Cuba kind of begs for slide film. Oh my gosh, yeah. That would <laughs> really be does. amazing. Yeah. That'd be cool to do a slide show with all those too. Like, do you have like a little slide machine? No. <gasps> I, if I ever need one, I can go to literally any thrift store in America and pick one up. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be fun to do it like at a party or something and just like let it play. Oh my all God. All those parties I go to? All the parties. Okay. A year and a half ago, I would have said Japan, and it was the kind of bucket list accomplishment that you can't beat, you can only repeat. But going to Hong Kong was just as magical in so many ways and totally unexpected. So since you're going back to Japan is still number one, to give you a better answer, I'd like to say I want to repeat that experience for someone else, for one of my friends, and see their love through their eyes and capture a place like France or Montana or whatever it is that excites them and find that universal beauty and the attachment of something foreign and fantastic yes yeah that's a i didn't even think about that uh that would actually i maybe would have done that as another question where do you want to take someone else and that's probably going to be a question at some point but i love the answer because that's really what i did with you in kansas yeah and that's what i just did in sequoia yeah so I think it's I think it's important to do that. And I think it's really fun. It's energizing for me anyway, as a photographer, to take someone to a place that you've been mm -hmm. and a place that you love and show them like, hey, here's this thing that I love. And you can watch how they interpret it and how they shoot it. And it's really inspiring. Even if like 50% of what they say is, it's so fucking hot. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. <laughs> hey, guys. I just finished listening to your episode. I'm in a place called the Rifugio Arbol in the northwest part of the Alps in Italy. I'm around 2,900 meters. This is your podcast through the hike. Place that I really want to photograph I've never been. That'll be Venice. And oddly enough, I'm going to be there in a week's time. I'm going to be there four days alone. Cheap now. There's no one, no tourists, so I can't wait. And one thing I can't wait is taking pictures of Venice during the night. When you'll listen to this voice message, I'll probably be there. Ciao. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> yes. That's like in action. That's in action. He's, he's, he's doing it. He's doing he it. He is doing it. 
and no tourists is, must be amazing right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, ha- have you been to Venice? <laughs> no, I haven't, which is okay. very strange. Um, that is strange, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You spent like a summer in, in Italy, right? Yeah, I, I have several. Kid. And um, okay. yeah, I mean, I don't have much family there anymore. Technically, I have dual citizenship, but I've never actually like gotten my passport. <laughs> so... <laughs> But I maybe I should. <laughs> maybe you should, yes. But I think Venice, I mean, Venice has always been on the list, of course, but it is just kind of like an intense, like, crowded place. I would like to go, like, sometime in winter. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I think kind of trying to enjoy it. You know, like what I did in Rome. I went, like, in March, and it was perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. Very well, cool. thanks for everybody who called in. We really appreciate it. Well, I guess we should probably get around to answering this ourselves. So, Vanya, where is a place, or places, I guess? Yeah, there's so many. I mean, I'm going to just pick one for now. (laughs) Okay. Where where is a place you would like to go that you've never really been that you really want to shoot? So, about five years ago, I had planned a trip for 2020, and that was to go to (laughs) Tofino and, like, Canada and just, like, kind of experience Canada. I've never... Actually, well, yeah, I've been in the airport and that's about it. Sure. So I really wanted to experience it. Um, so kind of a bummer because now I can't go. <laughs> so thank you very much, America. <laughs> yeah. For, you know, for really, really taking care of this problem very well. I know everything that's going on is fairly temporary. Yes, of course. And Hopefully. I know that that's going to happen. So I'm just even more amped to to go for it and give it a shot there's a ton of stuff i want to do up in that like region i want to like take a boat and drive through like all the i I just there's so many things uh obviously shooting in the water realistically i would like to have my water housing done and be shooting some of the 220 uh film (laughs) that i've been stocking up on yeah yeah (laughs) that's something that's been on my mind a lot lately and i i mean obviously it's because that trip had been planned for this year and it just didn't it just didn't work out real quick gear talk um you mentioned 220 yes and underwater shooting and that makes sense so could you explain what 220 is and why you would want to use that for underwater shooting so my plan is to get medium format in the water and I would like to get a custom water housing for my Pentax 645. Yes. And 220 film is basically the same as 120 film. It is just longer. It's <laughs> so you get twice more as shots. long. So you yeah. get about 30 shots. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that um, as much as I like the limitation of 12 on land, it's a lot easier to change out and add more film if you'd like. Uh, when you're in the water, it's not so easy. So no. once I load the roll, that's it until I soak it and rinse it and dry it. You can't really just like reload right in the middle. You could damage the camera. This camera is not like a fully automatic camera. It has batteries. So it would be a lot different than I'm yeah. used to. Usually I stick my camera like strap in my teeth and I'm like knee paddling or I stick it inside my wetsuit and stuff. And yeah. that's just not, that's not the kind of shooting it would be. It would be like me in the water only with fins, no surfboard. It'd be all uh, professional like. Right? Okay, Eric. <laughs> yes? Please tell me your answer. Well, my answer is 
Pretty simple. I guess it is a place I've visited. And a lot of these people have, have also answered with places they visited and want to go back to. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that, and I'm speculating, but I think a lot of that is they visited it before they were shooting film or at least shooting seriously. Mm-hmm. And it is visiting a place after you're shooting film, you go there for different reasons and you see different things. Mm-hmm. And for me, I want to revisit the coal region in Pennsylvania. I grew up there. I would skip school and we would go and visit Ashland and, and Centralia and, and uh, Frackville. I just, I haven't been there in, well, a lot of years, a couple decades, maybe maybe a little more. And I want to see the place again. I want to go to to places like Shendo and Mount Carmel. And they've got these, they're very Catholic there. It's a very Catholic place. And so they have bathtub Marys. And what that is, is half of a, like an old clawfoot tub. You, you saw it in half. And then you place a statue of Mary inside of it and put it on your lawn. No way. And it, yeah, it's a, it creates like a really interesting little altar, I guess. I'm not Catholic. I have no connections to the Catholic Church. But it's a beautiful little thing that's very unique to that area. And I want to photograph them. I want to photograph that whole, like all the old um, coal equipment that's still there, all the old hoppers and stuff. I don't know. I remember just seeing it as a kid and I want to go back. I want to take a picture of Shimokin's coal slag pile and their orange creek that runs through town. <laughs> it's so weird. It's, it's a, the, the, the coal region is a weird place. I didn't grow up in the coal region, grew up adjacent to it. And so we were always taught like, oh yeah, the coal crackers are, are really weird people. And you know, you guys were sure. probably the weird ones. <laughs> well, I'm sure they said, oh, those people and the, the freaking Germans over there are really weird people. And we were, I think everybody's just a little weird, but my diversity growing up wasn't, we didn't have, you know, people of color where I'm, where I'm from. We had people of different um, European backgrounds. And so we had Russians and Polish people and Italians, a lot of Italians, you know, Lithuanians and Germans and Irish. And so all of those people kind of have kind of assimilated in, into a weird coal region amalgamation. And it's, it's interesting. It's a really interesting place. And I want to visit it again. I'd like to see it again. I'd like to shoot it again. When's the last time you've been home? Seven, eight years ago, maybe. Okay. So it's it's been a while. Yeah, so you'll definitely be walking in with a different set of eyes. Oh, bye, yeah. And you're definitely. picturing it a certain way that you remember. And I'm wondering if it's going to match what it actually is. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've been, I've been looking at photos from, um, I don't know their name, but on Instagram, they're tattooed. Film shooter, yeah. They're from Pennsylvania, huh? Um, I think so. They shoot a lot in the coal region anyway. And mm. I've been looking at their photos, and I'm, I'm really kind of inspired. Like, kind of like, oh, well, maybe I should go back at some point and, and shoot, but we'll see. I like it. I think you should. Eventually. So recently I was on Instagram and I noticed this wonderful person posted that she was making some handmade scenes and there was only 10 available. So I got lucky (laughs) because I saw it right away. I just happened to be on right at that moment and I sent it to Eric like, oh my gosh, we have to get these. We've both been admiring her photos for for a while now. Yeah, I've been mentioning it, you know, like, and maybe I should say this more. Maybe we should have like, who's really kind of blowing you away at the moment as far as like their photographs and like Liz Potter is definitely that person for me right now um I really love what she's doing and um so we ordered and we got them in a few days ago and it is just so beautiful it's so creative it's refreshing it's exciting and I've been begging Eric if we can get her on I was like yeah let's have Liz on let's have Liz on let's have Liz on so you didn't have to beg you guys 
We're having Liz on. (laughs) We are. We are. So let's just shut the fuck up and give Liz a call. (laughs) Good idea. (laughs) Hey, Liz. (laughs) How are you? Hi, Vanya. (laughs) Hello. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good. It's not as blazing hot as it has been. Yeah. How has that been? It felt mild because it was in the mid 90s, but it was in the the hundreds last week. Uh, So I decided to go camping. Oh, cool. Oh, sure. Sure. um, Are you like a tent camper or are you like a trailer camper? How do you how do you camp usually? Full on tent camper. Okay. But not okay. a hike-in tent, like a drive up, my cooler's in the car. Oh, sure. Gotcha. Sure. That's camper. kind of what, yeah. what we do. I do. I mean, Vanya yeah. does a van, but I get the pleasure of sleeping on the incredibly hot ground every night. That's Oh, no, you need an air mattress. It has <laughs> changed my life. <laughs> yeah, I do I have imagine. one of the... Yeah, uh... I, <laughs> it is nice. Oh, it, it's good. I yeah. mean, if it loses air, then you end up becoming like the human taco. You wake up and you're like, <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> I thought it would be nice to start the interview with maybe just you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came into film photography. Uh, my name's Liz Potter, and I currently live in Alpine, Texas, which is a really small town, 6,000 people. I lived in Austin for 30 years, so... I just took a big leap, drier climate, a lot fewer people, and it really changed my photography, among other things. I have a degree in photojournalism. I went to the University of Texas in Austin, and it was in the late 80s, so the darkroom was default, which is great. I've never felt an affinity to digital. It's just a little too techy. I started out as a fine art major and took a photo class and the professor convinced me to switch to photojournalism. So it was a really great marriage of what I already had artistically, but then I could learn the technical skills and kind of the storytelling of photojournalism, documentary, photography because that's always appealed to me is like telling stories through photos, even if it's not really a story, but just kind of asking a question based on what are you looking at? So yeah, I was in Austin. I picked up a Holga at the main photographic workshops in 1990. And oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but I sat <laughs> with the Holga until 2016. Wow. Like, I what? feel like I escaped a cult. <laughs> Wow. That is incredible. Uh, What kind of deprogramming goes into getting out of the Holga and into the rest of (laughs) photography? Okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It is buying a Pentax 6.7 because it was, it shoots like a 35 millimeter. Mm -hmm. It's a medium format film. And as soon as I could focus and actually have control over exposure, I'm like, I I don't ever want to see my Holga again, ever. (laughs) I was totally worth it. But I think shooting with a Holga for so long really trained me in more intuitive shooting um, as far as light and just, it's like you have to rely on your senses a lot more when you shoot with a Holga. Mm -hmm. And it also, printing in the dark room, I'm not as scared of really hard negatives as some people might be because I'm I'm used to it. My Holga negatives were horrible. (laughs) So... Yeah. That's why yeah. that's why my pinhole, I'm like, hey, there's an image. That's fine. 
<laughs> you mentioned a little bit earlier about how your photos tell a story. And we noticed that like in your Instagram feed, you have long descriptions. You tell stories with the photos and, and around the photos. So does writing and storytelling, how does that interact with your photography? And how does that inspire you? Or how does your photography inspire that? I think it's probably more the photography inspires the writing. I I write really just for myself. I mm-hmm. I feel like there's a very low percentage of people who actually read it. It's a way for me to almost log that information. So if I want to go back and look at what actually happened and not rely on my memory, I've got it written down. But uh, I also think that for those who do read it, I think it's interesting just to hear a little bit more about what's going on. And it gives a fuller picture of like what they're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. So you did mention the Holga and then kind of switching over to the Pentax 67. But I do notice that you shoot with several different cameras, such as the Agfa Clack and of course the Pinhole. So what draws you to shoot with these types of cameras as opposed to like the technical ones? That's a new thing for me to break free of like one camera mm-hmm. and just suddenly have so many cameras. I have to carry luggage <laughs> when I go shoot. <laughs> I bought the clack because it's super cute and it's cheap and it takes 120 film. So I was like, okay, I'll get this camera. I don't, I find myself shooting that camera more like a vacation snapshot camera, probably what it was made for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Than purposely trying to take a, a good picture. I'm just like, I just kind of snap it away. Mm-hmm. The uh, the pinhole, I've wanted to do pinhole since the yeah. late 1980s, and I just never made time to learn it. And I unearthed a camera that I've had for over 20 years and realized it's a pinhole camera. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's the pinhole pandemic camera. I, <laughs> Yeah, I was looking, I was like, oh, maybe I should try to shoot this camera. I was like, there's no lens. And I thought, wait, somebody completely made it into a pinhole. Yeah. So with those, you had your ghost series that you've been doing lately. So for many photographers, this whole quarantine time, it it had us like kind of walking around our neighborhoods, shooting empty streets and closed signs. Pretty much all of us were doing that. You took that in a very different direction. Tell us a bit about like, what was the thought behind all of this? I think while everybody else was walking around taking pictures of empty streets and buildings, I was having a full-on meltdown. (laughs) So I wasn't... There were several months where I just... I had to kind of rewrite my whole business plan because I'm self-employed and a lot of events that were scheduled were canceled. A lot of the things that I do recreationally were canceled. And with my Pentax 6.7, I use it for my favorite form of photography, which is documentary photography, just capturing things that are happening like kids running around a bonfire or, you know, going to the pool or meeting people and taking pictures of, you know, portraits of them. And I just didn't have any interest in taking pictures of people with masks on. I didn't feel like I had the time to do anything else than focus on my business. So once I got through those dreadful few months, I finally kind of pulled it together and some of the parks started opening. And then I stumbled on my pinhole (laughs) (laughs) and had the first roll come out. And I just, I looked at the pictures I had taken of myself and it just made me immediately think of an opportunity to go to revisit some of these places that I know so well and maybe find some new places and not just take landscapes because I'm not really inspired to take landscapes. I do take them just because I'm surrounded by 
beautiful landscapes, but I never set out to purposely take them. It's just like, oh, look, the clouds are really puffy and cool. I better take a picture. <laughs> With the pinhole, it, it kind of gave me, <laughs> it just gave me a direction. I just like to have projects. So it really, it gave me an opportunity to have some fun again and focus on something other than everything else. Yes. Yeah, no, it was a great project. Can you maybe explain how you did your series or just give us a couple hints on, on how to achieve something like that? Well, when I first started, I got a lot of advice from people about how to calculate exposures. And I just threw that all out the window because <laughs> I just... I'm just not a technical person. I mean, I still have to look at the chart sometimes when I'm developing film. I'm like, I know I've done this like 10,000 times, <laughs> but I just, I just, my brain doesn't think that way. Yeah. So for my exposures, <clears throat> I just looked at the rolls that I shot and I just noticed like, okay, that was in intense sun. That's really overexposed. Next time I did it, I would do it a little less. So my exposures range from a minute and a half to over three minutes. And then for me to get in them and show up, that also depends on what I'm wearing, what I'm up against. But in general, those are about maybe 50 seconds to a minute and a half. Mm -hmm. Do you just walk in frame or is it two separate photos? Oh no, I walk in frame. Okay. So I kind of like, I look ahead at the landscape. I don't know why I use that viewfinder. It's not. <laughs> I mean, Wishful it's thinking. not even at all what the picture looks like, but I still look through it. And uh, <laughs> so I kind of scout out like, okay, I want to be over there by that bush. And um, my pinhole camera is bungee corded to my tripod. And then I use duct tape. <laughs> I use duct tape to smash down the um, shutter release. Oh. And I... Yeah. And uh, <laughs> then I run over to it. And sometimes like the ones where it looks like I'm kind of walking, like what I'll do is like, I'll be striding towards something. And I'm like, okay, I want to be motion. So I'll just stop like mid stride. Because mm -hmm. I'm trying to make it look natural, sort of natural. Yeah. But then I have to hold it for like a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I have bugs landing on me and I'm, <laughs> and, um, I'm just like, I'm going to do it. Even if I get stung by something, I am not, I'm not wasting a, an image. So. Wow. Okay. You kind of had me at bungee cord and duct tape. I think that's exactly like what I wanted to hear. It was fantastic. I hope everybody else enjoys that. <laughs> you made a handmade zine, which Eric and I just received a few days ago. It was kind of like a, a callback to an old album, like with the ornate trim around the borders of each print. Is there a certain reason you decided to go handmade and limited with this series? Part of that is because I... I'm addicted to crafting and always have. So I'm always making something. But mm -hmm. part of it was the pandemic. I, at the beginning of the year, I had all these plans laid out for this year. And one of those plans was to publish several zines. And I ended up not having the resources or the time to do that. Before I did the book, I was making some postcards. And I looked at the postcards and thought, well, this would be a great book. I've made handmade books for a long time, just mainly for my friends and family. But I don't know, I just thought it would be cool. And just the quality of the photos, the pinhole images already look old. 
old. There's sort of a timelessness about them because of my locations, mm-hmm. but there's also that old look, and it made me immediately think of my grandmother's photo albums from the 20s through the 40s, and the, I always love that beautiful decorative trim around it. It's, I mean, starting with the cover, you did a linoleum block print uh, yeah. or a rubber block I or? carved a relief print for that. Yeah. I don't. I use um, Speedy Car because it's easier. Oh, sure. yeah. uh, it looks like a big pink eraser. Mm-hmm. But I do that for my other business. And I thought, well, that would be kind of fun because I did. I was trying to figure out what would be a nice cover. And it was really fun. So yeah. I thought that would be a nice addition. It is. It's a print of the camera. Yeah. Yes. Which is, what was the <laughs> camera originally? It looks, it really looks like, um, is a, uh, Six. I know what you're saying because I feel like I have something that yeah, looks similar I had to this. Some, I the had one of these. Yeah. What is it? Okay. I I don't know because whoever made it into a pinhole also painted heavily painted the front of it with red paint. Okay. And I've looked and the, so the lettering's all filled in. Okay. So my parents, my mom gave it to me as decoration. I was like, okay, that's cute. And I just stuck it away. And so, isn't that weird that I've had this for so long? It's odd. And now I'm yeah. suddenly, I love it. <laughs> I, I love that. And also, it gives me more of a reason not to get rid of anything. <laughs> exactly. I exactly. don't know about that. Would you ever consider doing more of a mass mass market or mass produced oh, definitely. type of print? Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my plan. This was okay. almost like a dry run for doing a printed zine um, <laughs> where Yeah, wow. <laughs> check back in 2024, I might be working on it. <laughs> I think what makes me addicted to projects is that there's a beginning and an end and there's that feeling of completion of like, and now I can do the next thing. I mean, don't, I say I may not do this for a long time, but I already just got some supplies in the mail today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know how that goes. (laughs) Each week we have people call in to the podcast and leave a voice message to a certain question that we ask. And so the question for next episode is... What is the next thing you want to attempt in photography? Is it like a, a new format, maybe a different kind of printing, an alt process, maybe completely changing the kind of photographer you are? What's the next new thing for you? That's hard yeah. because new new is hard for me. Okay. Um, even though <laughs> I've made some leaps and bounds in that direction, um, what I started to do last year and totally dropped is what I would start doing again, and that is four by five large format photography. Okay. I bought a camera and I took it out and I shot a few pieces of film and I put them in my film developer tank and it's sitting in my closet from <laughs> probably a year ago. <laughs> so it's a good place to start, I guess. <laughs> so can I say my old... Yeah, that old attempt is my new. Yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of people's answer. But I feel like once I develop some of those pieces of film and I get some nice results, that's probably the turning point of like, okay, I want to keep doing this. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, (laughs) thank you so much for talking to us. It's been really rad. No, thank you. I'm flattered that you reached out. Well, uh, we're really. We were excited to have you on. We're excited for the book. We can't wait to see more. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
f-stops. We all use them, and some of us even know why. But what are they? What is an f? What's a stop? What's the difference between an aperture and a diaphragm? What's up with the weirdly specific numbers? And what's the deal with the funny-looking f? First, let's get some pesky terminology out of the way. The word aperture comes from the Latin apertura, meaning a hole. And essentially, that's what an aperture is. It's a damn hole. In photography, however, it's a hole with a very specific purpose, to limit the amount of light coming through the lens. Now, Vanya, why would you want to limit the amount of light coming through a lens? (laughs) Well, the main reason is that too much light would overexpose a photo, right? Yes. Okay, so that would technically be bad. So limiting light in certain circumstances is a good thing. Today in modern cameras, and by modern we mean cameras from the last hundred years or so, the aperture is controlled by blades that are open and closed by a ring on the lens. But this wasn't always the case. No, in early lenses, small plates of metal with various size holes drilled into them served as diaphragms. You'd select the diaphragm, which was a small little metal plate, with the desired hole size and slide it into a little slot on the barrel of the lens. The diaphragm controls the aperture, the size of the hole. Think of it like how the eye works. The iris contracts or expands depending upon the light, controlling the size of the pupil. If there is low light, the iris expands to allow more light to enter the pupil. When you're shooting in low light, you'll use an expanded, larger aperture to allow more light to hit the film. So again, an example of that would be we often shoot at 2.8 in low light situations or with low speed film. Yeah, so that's another thing. Like if, say, you're new to photography or just new to film photography and it's really low and you have a built-in light meter, you can even watch it, look through the viewfinder and move the aperture ring and see where that light meter goes up and down with the expansion of the aperture. But in old-timey photography, aperture was used a little bit different than it is today. There was more of a a science experimenty feel to it. So a photographic (laughs) dictionary from 1902 instructed the photographer to first focus with the largest aperture. Usually it was a lens without any diaphragm, little metal plates inserted into it, just a regular lens. Of course, we, we still really do this today. In most modern cameras, the apertures are wide open by default. So when we look through them, we can see the full you know lit picture. That's the case even after we select the f-stop that we want. Then when we click the shutter, the aperture blades quickly close to correct the f-stop right before the shutter opens. But way back when, after the photographer had set up the shot, they were instructed to employ small diaphragms till the sharpness is obtained over the whole screen. In modern times, we tend to either select our aperture number automatically or based upon available light, or maybe some bokeh or depth of field effect, of course. None of these things at all were considered back then in early photography. And then the main concern was, well, the main concern was getting a photo. And to do that, the main (laughs) concern was just getting it as sharp as possible. And then they would also consider the length of the exposure. The smaller the diaphragm, the longer the exposure, but also the sharper the image. All of that still holds true today. It's, It's pretty much basic science. But the intent and focus was different then. And that's probably interesting, right? (laughs) Perhaps. Let's give it a shot. In fact, it wasn't until the late 1850s that the effects of various diaphragm sizes were even talked about. Photographers, it seems, weren't convinced that different apertures had much, if any, effect upon the final photograph. 
This might have been due to the quality of lenses. If you were using a soft lens without the ability to cover the entire film plan, you'd probably not notice the difference between various apertures. But once lenses improved in quality, the effects became pretty obvious, though they were obviously doubted. The main concern at that time was just taking the photo. If you were shooting a still life in the studio, the duration of the exposure didn't really matter. Any size aperture would do, they thought. If you were taking portraits using real living and breathing humans, <laughs> shooting with a large aperture was considered best because the duration of the exposure would be relatively shorter. Any distortion wouldn't come from the larger or smaller aperture, but from the fidgety people unable to sit long enough for the plate to be properly exposed. And I mean, we're talking about long exposures. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you look at, well, look at some of Evelyn Cameron's photos that we had talked about last week. A lot of the, especially the ones of children, their faces are all blurred because they won't sit still. So photographers then then, though, they, they actually believe the photo taken with the smallest diaphragm would be identical to the photo taken with the largest if both were exposed correctly. Sir Thomas Grubb, a lens maker from Ireland with an incredibly unfortunate last name, wrote in the late 1850s that as the photographer becomes convinced that there is an effect due to aperture, their pictures will become more artistic. <laughs> Those were the days when there were great arguments over whether photography was a science or an art. I'm glad we settled that. <laughs> yeah, uh... I think we may have talked about that at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> uh, and another manual from 1892, the matter still seemed to be unsettled. Uh, I guess nobody was listening to Sir Thomas Grubb. So to convince the reader that differently sized apertures would affect the photo differently, the author of this manual instructs photographers to cut their own out of cardboard, placing them over a lens to view the increased sharpness for themselves. According to a 1868 manual, diaphragms ranged in size from half inch to nearly a full diameter of a lens. But then these were huge lenses shooting 8x10 plates. While many expensive lenses came with their own set of metal diaphragms with various apertures, Photographers of lesser means had to resort to cutting their own to place over the lens. These were known as the waterhouse stops. So essentially, you didn't even need to know the exact size of the hole to cut. Like, you didn't need to measure anything or, or be precise to a certain degree because you just wanted a smaller hole, an increasingly smaller, increasingly larger holes. So all you needed were a series of holes ranging from small to large. When setting up the shot, you'd pick one that worked best for you in your lighting situation, and you would shoot. Of course, today, all of this is done for you. In early photography, you didn't really need to know what the seemingly random numbers are all about. You didn't really need to know what an f-stop was or why it was called an f-stop. But needing to know something and wanting to know something are two different things. Let's want to know this. Sometimes I still honestly struggle. <laughs> okay, with, with what? In, specifically? <laughs> with F-stops. Okay, sure. Like because the smaller numbers are bigger holes? Um, just trying to explain it to somebody. Like I'll be I'll get mixed up even sometimes. Sure. Like, oh my god, wait, hold on. Let me go back. Let me let me think about this <laughs> for a second. I mean, I have it pretty dialed now, especially using like the low ISO film. Sure. It really helped me a lot. So when we look down at our cameras, we usually see a series of numbers, something like 2.8, 4, 5.6, 8, 11, and 16. Okay, those are pretty random. So what the hell? Without getting too mathy, let's explain <laughs> what this all means. Okay, first, I am not mathy at all. So me either. <laughs> let's talk about what a stop is. We always hear stop. Stop. You know, the stop of light, or we stop down, or we stop up. So 
each consecutive stop, stop allows half as much light in as the last. So if you're shooting at f16 and you change it to f11, say the sun went behind a cloud, choose to f you shoot you change it to f11, which is one stop. stop. You're allowing twice as much light to hit the film as before. So f11 is twice as much light as f16. Similarly, f8 is twice as much light as f11, and f5.6 is twice as much light as f8. Amazing. The f and f-stop stands for focal length. This is literally the length of your lens. So 50 millimeter, 80 millimeter, 300 millimeter, whatever you got. The number after the f is the denominator of a fraction. That's the bottom number. The focal length of the lens divided by the aperture number gives us the size of the aperture diameter. In other words, this fraction gives us the actual size of the hole. Yeah, so if you're ever wondering how they came up with the actual size of the holes, like, well, we're going to tell you right the F now. <laughs> if you've got an 80 millimeter lens and you're shooting it at F8, your aperture size, the hole, the size of the hole is 10 millimeters or 80 divided by 8. That's simple math. We can all do that. So, of course, the diameter of the aperture hole is different for different focal lengths. F8 in a 50 millimeter lens isn't 10 millimeters. It is 6.25 millimeters in size. In a 300 millimeter lens, the hole for F8 would be 37.5 millimeters. But the cool thing is that no matter what size the lens, and so that means no matter what size the aperture hole for F8, in this case, F8 always delivers the same amount of light to the film. And that's true for every f-stop across every lens. Ooh, so I would say that makes sense. But why the random numbers? Well, the random numbers aren't really random at all. The numbers aren't arbitrary. They are just part of a mathematical equation used to figure out the diameter of the aperture. Over the years, there have been various systems for expressing this aperture. Ours is the one that's stuck. So Zeiss had two. Voigtlander had one. There was one by Gertz and Dallmeyer. Uh, each tried their best to make it simple for the photographer. For instance, early Zeiss lenses had basically a modern f-stop of what we would call f3.2. They referred to this as 1024. That's 1024. When you decrease the light by a stop, so you stopped to f4.5, they called that 512. So that's half of 1024. And they half it again to f6.3, and they called that 256. There was also their 128, which was our f9, and 64, which was f12.5 and so on and so on. In this case, Zeiss's numbers were really arbitrary. I can't see any reason they picked these numbers at all. They just needed a large number to start with, and they kept having it down so it wasn't so small when you got to f64 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you can still sometimes find the remnants of the system on older lenses. Like, Eric, you just picked up a lens recently with a different f-stop system, right? Well, it was the same. It's our f-stop system. I was very confused about this. And it's actually what prompted this whole f-stop thing. I, I, I picked up a Stein... <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, you know, I, I picked up a Steinheil Munchen lens for my Graflex, and it's probably maybe 100-ish years old. I don't know. So the f-stops on that are 4.5, 6.3, 9, 12.5, and 18. Very different from ours, but following a, a very similar trajectory. These are based on the equivalencies that Zeiss made. And so, mm -hmm. like I said, Zeiss, their number 128 was what we call, and what my lens calls, F9. 
And so when you're metering for these lenses, you do have to take that into consideration where if your meter tells you F8, F9 will probably work, but you do have to kind of maybe err on the side of it not working here and there. The system that nearly caught on before being taken over by the F-stop was called the US system. Here, US did not mean United States, calm down everybody, but uniform system. It was founded by the Royal Photographic Society of 1881. <laughs> we really like talking about the 1800s on the show. Apparently we do. <laughs> so, let's, let's explain the uniform system. It's a system based on the f-stop system, I think, but it tried to simplify it like all the other ones. In the US system, their number 16 was equivalent to our F16. So that makes sense, right? But because you cut the light in half when moving from F16 to F11, like we've said before, the US system made that 8, which is half of 16. So that makes sense. 11 is not half of 16. That doesn't make sense. But 8 is half of 16. And so half a light of 8 was called 4, which is our modern F8. 8. Yes. Yeah. Half of that was two, the modern F5.6. Again, basically arbitrary, but logical. They just kept having the numbers. So the next one would be mm -hmm. one. They kind of stopped there. There's some points, but that doesn't really matter. So a couple of years ago, I picked up an old 4x5 camera from 1905, and it uses the US system, and it confused the hell out of me. <laughs> Because <laughs> it looked, it looks very similar to the numbers that we use. You know, 16 is there, 8 is there, 4 is there. We, we use these numbers in our photography, but they just didn't seem to quite add up. And there was an F128. And I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> what is a 128 that is, on that camera? I believe it's F32. Yeah, I could see how that would make more sense. I would probably get, like, if I was used to using that system, I would like it very much. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes yes. more, much more sense. Mathematically, our system makes the most sense because it measures the exact size of the hole, yes. which is a really nice benefit to our f-stop system is that you, you are measuring the size of the hole. The other systems, you're not. But also, mm -hmm. who cares? <laughs> it was more simple, but it was rejected because the f-stop system was basically already in place. So we settled on the f-stop system. But why did we settle on those numbers? 2.8, 4, 5.6, 11, 16, 22... Eleven. <laughs> yeah, that's. I looked for a long time for to try to figure this out. Like, why did yeah. we? Well, why did we switch from four point five, six point three, nine, twelve point five, and eighteen to two point eight, four, five point six, eleven, sixteen, twenty-two, etc.? I don't know. I do not know why we switched that. It makes no sense. There's a book from 1914 that explained the square of each number is approximately double that of the preceding one, but. It's approximate, so also who cares? And I don't think that's not true with the other series of numbers. So I don't know what happened or why. More than likely, like with a lot of things, it was a camera company trying to differentiate themselves from another camera company. Yeah, that makes sense. Kodak pulled that shit all the time, 620 film. So maybe it was that. I really don't know. And they do say approximate because this is for the, the, the pedants among us. F11, F22, and F45 are not exactly... Exactly, F11, F22, and F45. If we're being super picky and precise, and we are, F11 is actually F11.3, F22 is 22.6, and then there is 45.2. Just in case you want to get your maths right. Oh, boy. Okay, <laughs> so moving on. Figuring out which aperture you should use can be fun, we promise. The higher the number, the crispier the photo, assuming you focus properly. Remember the old manual that told us to experiment with bits of cardboard with different size holes punched in them. Their idea was to show how the image got sharper as the holes got smaller. 
And we can see this for ourselves if we're okay with blowing through half a roll of film. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's blow through half a roll of film. So we'd set up our cameras on a tripod and focus on an object a few feet away. Say something that's not going to move around like a fucking cat. So then you <laughs> shoot it with various apertures, starting with the lowest, say 2.8. Uh, that would be the largest aperture hole to the highest, say F22 if you go that high. And you'd have to adjust the film speed for that, of course. And so once you develop the film, you will see the effects. Yeah, you'll have obviously more shallow depth of field with a smaller aperture. Yeah, you'll also be able to tell things like bokeh. And maybe someday, maybe, we'll get into what depth of field is and what bokeh is and why or even if it matters. Apparently it does. But not today. Today we are done talking about f-stops. Stop! No, the funny looking f. Okay, sure. What, what is what is the funny looking F about? Please. Well, us. so it stands for focal length yes. and it isn't specifically about some prior mathematical expression. I think the fancy F is just to be fancy. Ooh. Though it's hard to say, but I think it's just fancy. Just a fancy F. <laughs> Has a little yeah. bit of flourish. It stands for flourish. I don't know. Well, if you guys are still with us after the F-stop, you're in luck because we have two zines that people have sent us and we are going to review them. Watch out for snakes. Okay, but first, apparently, apparently we have, we're have we having a watch out for snakes moment right now. This just came across my desk. Urgent breaking news. <laughs> Last episode, we made a kind of a big mistake talking about the, the state of the Evelyn Cameron Digital Archive. We said that it did not exist. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does actually exist. I was, after the episode aired, and actually a couple of days after that, I was just kind of still searching around looking for Evelyn Cameron stuff. I'm, we're both really, really into her. And I found a Montana archive site that had all of her diaries scanned. And so you can read her actual diaries uh, in her own hand, but they also have them transcribed as well. I was looking at the diaries and I saw that in this archive, there were a large, large number of files. I don't think the diary would take up this much space. And so I started just poking around a little bit and I found a photo. And then I found another. And after a little bit of searching, I found roughly 700 of her, her photos scanned from the plates or captured from the plates, however they do that. And so there is an online archive. It is poorly kept. It is poorly organized, but it exists. And you can see her photos. Uh, they're very small sizes. You can't really download large sizes of them, but you can zoom in on the webpage and see them. And I really recommend you do it. We will have all that info in the show notes uh, where you can see these things. And I think it's worth checking out, even though it's horribly organized. But there is a lot of information on the photos themselves. So if you're really interested in Evelyn's life, it does give you a little bit of a, a bigger picture of that. And plus, her diaries are amazing. <laughs> so definitely worth checking it out. And we'll give that in the show notes. But I don't know, Vanya, what do you think this means for our, our potential project? <laughs> I know. It's kind of a bus now. I mean, uh, I, I still would like to go visit it, obviously, yeah. and talk to some of the people that run it and maybe even just get some of their stories recorded. I mean, there's still some things that we can do with there it. Are. And there's also the gallery of her prints, the ones that she actually made. Yeah. You know, so I don't know if we will be there, scanners in hand, like we wanted to be, but I don't know. The, the, the captures that they have, if you've ever seen a glass plate or even just a, a good, a good capture of a glass plate, there's a rich depth to them. And these don't have that. They're not very well done. I'm not saying we could do a better job, obviously, but these aren't very well done. They deserve to be redone. 
and they deserve to be better organized. And there's only 700, and I know there's a lot more glass plates than that. So I don't know what's going on there. And that's something that maybe we should check into. But at least 700 is a good place to start. And maybe they're not the best looking photos in the world. But again, I think it's worth checking out. Okay, now to one of my favorite segments. It's zine time. I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> zine time, baby. Okay, zines, of course. Um, we love zines. We love when people send zines to us. We so really thank you do. very much. Uh, I recently got a zine and I would like to talk to you about it. Well, good. That's why we're so, here. So Instagram handle. Alan being Alan sent me two zines. He actually sent me a publication called Spunk and he had some photographs that were in it, which I thought was really, really cool. He sent me a handwritten note and kind of explained all about it and uh, marked the pictures that were his. And it was just really cool. And he should definitely be proud. That's, that's cool that he was able to be a part of something like this. Uh, and then he also sent me a, his zine that he made and it's called now you see me, number one. And he talked a little bit about, you know, when he started photographing, and this was like 1990, these photographs that he decided to put in it are from a very pretty, I mean, a wide range. And he only picked a few, but he definitely picked some pretty amazing shots. So the images he, the ranges are from 1995 to 2019. So that's quite some time. In his words, he said it was 25 years in the thinking about and seven days in the actual making. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so one thing I would like to explain about it is it is one of the eight panel zines that you can actually print out and fold up. It is one of my favorite type of zines to make because you can just do all sorts of fun stuff with this. I mean, the printing on this is amazing. So I'm not sure how if he used his home printer or what, but this is good. Yeah. Um, and then when you open it up, it shows all the panels. And then on the other side, there's like an actual like kind of poster print of a chick's t-shirt with a bikini kill. It's <laughs> it's very punk rock. <laughs> These are really great images, all black and white. It's just neat. I just really like that he did this. And he actually sent me a message recently that he's working on a project with someone. He's going to be making another zine again soon. But this is available. He made 100 of them. And they're $4. And that includes postage. So oh, wow. cool. I love it. I think that you guys should definitely check it out. His Instagram is at Alan being Alan. And he also has a website. So some of his pictures are on there too, if you want to take another look. He's got some really interesting perspectives. It's It's a lot of fun. It was really cool. And um, so thank you so much for sending it. I love it. It's going <laughs> with my ever-growing amazing collection of zines. It's ridiculous. Yes. It's starting to get wild. I think I have to actually order like a wall shelf. <laughs> wow. I can put them all up. Nice. Oh, but you know what I've been doing? This was obviously before quarantine. The last time I had people over at my house, I think it, ugh, unfortunately, I think it was like Thanksgiving. So it had been a while. But what I do is I grab a ton of zines and I put them like on the coffee tables. Oh, yeah. And I notice like people will just be like, oh, what are these? Are these yours? I'll be like, no, these are like people that people sent me 
me these. So I had like and zines out. I had all sorts of people's zines out. And it was just kind of fun to like have it out for people to look at. It's a really good idea. Yeah, because it's sometimes yeah. we wonder like, what the hell do we do with all of these zines? And if we do have people over, which I mean, I honestly, I never do. But it's a good idea. If you do entertain, maybe use zines for some entertainment. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. I don't know. I'm super about like having things like placed in fun areas for people to look at. Mm -hmm. I am a master of distraction. (laughs) You are that. Speaking of, I would like to talk about the zine that I'm reviewing. And this was one that I was really excited about. And we actually talked about it early, early on. And on the podcast, this is by Karen Freer. It is oh, yeah. Filling the Time in Catalonia. And you remember her maybe from, I don't remember which episode it was, but she was the roller derby photographer because yes. her wife is a skater. And so this is a zine, nice zine, beautiful. Like it's a perfect bound, bright color, like orange and blues. And there's like a lot of colors here. And it is, okay, so it's full color and it's a zine of their honeymoon. It's oh, kind of, yeah. I remember yeah. she was saying that she wanted to make something. Yeah. And so Karen and Colleen, they got married and then they went to Catalonia. And I remember this happening. I remember that, you know, following them on Instagram when, when yeah, the all story. Yeah. It was beautiful and wonderful and amazing. And that's their zine. It's a beautiful, wonderful and amazing zine. What a different and fun idea instead of having just like, I'm sure they have a wedding book too, but I'm that's sure. kind of like, a wedding album a little bit like look at this is our vacation and she like instead of making it like all like about engagement and marriage it's like look at our awesome trip that we took and i made a zine yes and that's what's cool it isn't it it doesn't come across as like two starstruck lovers on a honeymoon (laughs) it comes across like a regular zine there's beautiful photos of architecture i mean there's definitely photos of them um and there's some cats which is the, probably the most important thing about it. Yeah, you have to have like a certain amount of cats and yeah. something. I think there's a rule about it. <laughs> there, there is, absolutely. So like I said, it's a, it's a perfect bound zine. It's full of color and, and she's, she has it for sale on her, on her site. It, it's four pounds. I don't know how she's selling it for so cheaply, but she is. And that's awesome because you definitely, absolutely should pick this up. Her Instagram handle is at sisboomba. S-I-S-B-O-O-M-B-A-H. You absolutely need to follow her if you're not following her. She's actually doing a really wonderful series. She's actually doing a really wonderful series on the LGBTQ plus community in Bristol. And it's a really, I mean, it's, it's a serious series, of course, but there's a lot of fun there because, well, you know, it's just going to be a lot of fun. It, you need to see it. Please follow her. Please pick up this zine. And uh, yeah. Just do those things. And that's about all the podcasts that we have for you today. But we do have two more things we want to remind you about the question. Yes. Which is? The question is, what is the next new thing, new to you, that you want to attempt in photography? So is it maybe a new format? So you're only shooting 35 and you thought, well, maybe I'll shoot medium format. Is it you're going to try printing again? Maybe someday I'll do that. Or an alt process, maybe sienna type or something. Or are you changing the, the kind of photographer you are? You're going from like a landscape photographer to a street photographer? Or, or give us a call. Leave us a voice message on Instagram and uh, let us know what you're uh, what you're thinking about. Yes. Any other news? Yes. Uh, we wanted to just kind of give a shout out to friend of the show, Matt Stubbs, who developed his first role ever last week. Yeah, It was rad. And it was Tasman Brickrat 300, which we will eventually <gasps> be talking about at length. <laughs> Maybe soon? 
Kind of like 200, but 300. It is 100 more. I mean, actually, <laughs> we'll get into that, yes, but it is actually 100 more. So congratulations, <laughs> Matt. Welcome to the rest of your life. This is it now. <laughs> yes. All right. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at Gmail, and we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. Yeah, Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag yourself, hashtag all through a lens podcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode. So check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcasts. Subscribe to us and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. Thank you all for listening so much. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. Um, Vanya? Yes? Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go! Now you got me fucked up.